Welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I'm your host, Dave, and I want to wish everybody happy Friday the 13th. I hope that you're able to celebrate the birth of young Jason Voorhees in your own special way, somewhere. Originally, today's episode was actually going to be Friday the 13th themed in some way. Uh, There was a thought at one time that we would do a needless commentary on another Friday the 13th movie. Uh, I was going to do an episode about phobias because as we all know Triskaidekaphobia is one of the big ones that that really is probably nonsense. Like I, I would imagine it's more people that are very very superstitious get nervous about Friday the 13th than they have an actual phobia of it, but I don't know. There's phobias of everything, so there's no telling what you people are scared of. But none of that matters because something way better than any of that came up. Today's guest, we have a special guest today, is Sam Koji Hale, who's the director of a movie called Yama Song March of the Hollows. It is the first major non-Muppet puppet film to be made in the United States since Team America. I got this opportunity. Obviously, you you know. If you know the show, you know that Mr. Bo Brown uh, sent this gentleman in my direction. And I said, of course I want to interview Sam Hale. Why wouldn't I? And we set it up, and we had an absolutely awesome conversation that ranged uh, everywhere. Obviously, we talk about Yamasong quite a bit. And the amazing voice cast involved. You guys, uh, you're not even going to believe Abigail Breslin, Nathan Fillion, Frida Pinto, Malcolm McDowell, Whoopi Goldberg, Bruce Davison, Peter Weller, George Takei, and Ed Asner uh, to top off the voice cast of this movie. Do you understand what I just said? That That's crazy. Uh, that's amazing. Bruce Davison alone, I could just listen to for hours. But you throw in Robocop, you throw in Sulu, you throw in uh, whoever Whoopi Goldberg's character was in Theodore Rex. Maybe not the best example. Uh, throw in Guinan. How about that? Guinan, right? Uh, this is amazing. This is a crazy, crazy voice cast, and I can't wait to see this. You can see the YouTube uh, trailer or the movie trailer on YouTube. Uh, if you go check it out, that's Y-A-M-A-S-O-N-G. If you Google that, you're going to get this movie. But it's awesome. I had a great time talking to Sam. We talked about everything from 80s toys and cartoons, because uh, that's what we do here a lot. Uh, and Sam's very obviously from my generation, so he, he knew his stuff uh, to, to the making of this movie, to all kinds of other stuff. It was an awesome, wide-ranging conversation you guys are really going to dig. Uh, I want to talk really quickly, and this is going to be a kind of a mixed audience type of thing, but WrestleMania happened this past Sunday. I'm not going to do a full rundown because that's not what we're here for today, but I just want to say that it was, uh, it didn't, it wasn't, I was super excited going into the show. I was really stoked for this WrestleMania, and it delivered some very good matches and two like WrestleMania moment 
feeling matches. I'll, and and that was really it. The the Ronda Rousey match was as far as being a big time WrestleMania match, it delivered 100%, maybe over 100%. Uh, Rousey was tremendous. Uh, Triple H showed ass like only Triple H can. Stephanie, we got a satisfying comeuppance from her. Kurt Angle was in there, did his thing. I mean, he looks like a million bucks. You know, it it hurts me to watch him standing there, but when he gets into wrestle, uh, the guy goes. And then the Charlotte Oscar match, which was probably the best match of the night, was great. So anyway, I mean, I'm not. I wasn't disappointed with WrestleMania. It just was a little flatter than I expected it to be. I thought it was going to be a much much bigger show than it was. But some of the some of the results were a little confounding. Uh, some were disappointing, and then the main event was just a big turd sandwich on top of an otherwise pretty fun okay evening of wrestling uh so there you go there real quick just my wrestlemania rundown i probably should have written something but but i gotta tell you guys my motivation to write is just not there right now so thank goodness for for beth and for jerry and uh for for devlin and and anybody else that writes for the site well that's it that's pretty much everybody now i think if I left somebody out, it's because it's 6.45 in the morning. I just got off of another hellish night of work. But it's okay because I only have one more. And then going into this weekend is the Suicide Girls Blackheart Burlesque Saturday night, uh, April 14th. You can still get your tickets to center stage. It's going to be amazing. And then Sunday, 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 I am taking Phantom Jr. to see Weird Al Yankovic. And I went a little crazy last year when I bought the tickets and I bought the VIP backstage big deal tickets so me and my son are going to meet Weird Al Sunday and I'm a little freaking out about it I'm not gonna lie Weird Al is one of my first heroes uh and one of one of my first and one of the only ones that has been consistently my hero for 30 years longer, I guess. And I'm, I'm a little, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not nervous, but man, what do I say to weird Al? Cause I'm meeting him Sunday. Whew. I think Phantom Jr. is probably going to handle it better than I do. Uh, but I, I'm very excited. I'm very excited about this concert because it's, it's something different from, from his normal tours. But the fact that we're going to go backstage and, and meet, Weird Al, the Weird Al, UHF Weird Al, Polka Party Weird Al, Weird Al in 3D, Dare to be Stupid, song that was in Transformers, the movie, in 1986, Weird Al. Weird Al, the omnipresent pop culture icon, the symbol of the nerd culture movement that we're currently in the midst of, uh, or, or one of the symbols at least. Uh, wow. I need to stop thinking about it or else my head's going to explode. I oh, you guys, holy crap! All right, but before before the Suicide Girls Blackheart Burlesque tour, which by the way, I'm excited about that. Me and the missus are gonna go. We're gonna have a great time. We got a room downtown. We're just gonna hang out down there. Uh, that I'm. I it's here's here. So you know, here is how significant Weird Al is to me. Is I am 
so much more. I have so much more energy, nervous energy, excitement, anticipation stored up for the Weird Al experience than I do for tattooed naked girls dancing. That's saying something, you guys. All right. Anyway, uh, prior to all of the events later this weekend, this evening, for you guys anyway, uh, Friday the 13th, I have purchased tickets to take the family to go see Rampage, the new Dwayne Johnson vehicle, because I love the Rampage arcade game. I, I liked the NES game as well, but the arcade game was very formative for me because in back in the day when I was a youth, lots of people had birthday parties at the roller skating rink. And I never was able to roller skate. And it's not for lack of trying. Uh, almost every time I went to one of these birthday parties that my friends had at the roller skating rink, I, I got my skates, put them on, I tried to wheel around, uh, not not in the, the, the rink itself, but like out on the edge area where you could kind of practice a little bit. I'd, I'd try and stand up, uh, bust my ass, uh, be incredibly uncomfortable. And I think some of it maybe has to do with my build. Uh, I'm very tall. I have a very long torso. Uh, and, and maybe I'm just making excuses. I don't know. But I never got the hang of roller skating. I couldn't ever do it. Uh, I, tr I tried as a youth, I tried as a small child, I tried as a youth, as a teenager, I've tried as an adult, and I don't have the muscle groups required to propel myself around on wheeled shoes. I just don't. But what I do have uh, is, is the hands to kick some ass at Rampage. I loved that game. I still love that game. As a matter of fact, there's a, a place called... Uh, Oh, gosh. I think it's called Flashback. It's out in Loganville, Georgia. And it's it's a it's an arcade, but they have food and they have booze, and it's, it's a really cool little place uh, that I dig quite a bit. They've got Rampage there, uh, obviously. But I, I still love Rampage. It's not, it's not a faded thing. So that video game is a very special place to me because while all my friends were out ro roller skating around, I was at the cabinet playing Rampage all night, and I whooped ass at that game. Uh, Lizzie was my preferred character, and I just, I, I love it. And now, The Rock is starring in, and, and look, people look at the trailer and they're like, this is going to be stupid. Yes, dum-dum, of course it is. It's a giant gorilla, a giant lizard, and a giant wolf fighting each other and tearing apart a city and it's starring the rock hey, come on what do you want out of this movie you know what i want out of this movie i want exactly what i just said three big giant creatures beating the crap out of each other and and eating a city at some point at some point one of these creatures had better reach into a window and eat a person sitting on a toilet that's all i want out of this movie that's it that's my goal so everybody who's being a dick about rampage calm down sit back and enjoy the spectacle of it and that's what we'll be doing tonight and i'm very excited about going to see rampage not as excited as everything else we've got going on this weekend big big weekend uh but but definitely excited so 
I think that about covers everything I wanted to talk about in the intro. Uh, I do want to tell you to go to needlessthingspodcast.com. Click on that big square Amazon box on the top right side of the page. Go in through the portal and order yourself a copy of Rampage on whatever the last system it came out on is. I don't know. I'm sure there's a PS4 version of Rampage out there somewhere. Uh, Order some toys. I think the Rampage toys are Walmart exclusives, and I can't encourage anybody to buy anything from Walmart, but go buy yourself a, a gorilla and a lizard and a wolf and pretend they're the Rampage toys so you don't have to give Walmart any money because Walmart is partially responsible for the demise of Toys R Us, and I'll never forgive them for that. Uh, just go in, buy some Amazon stuff. Needless Things gets a little bit of a kickback. It doesn't cost you anything extra. You don't have to buy Rampage, Rampage stuff. You can buy socks. You can buy puppets. Eh? Maybe you need some puppets. Uh, maybe you need straws. I was supposed to buy some drinking straws. Do you know how hard it is to find long drinking straws, like 10-inch, 10, 11-inch drinking straws? They're, they're not in stores. I don't know where you get them, but every once in a while they show up in the house because uh, Mrs. Troublemaker is amazing at finding things like that. But we're we're in a long straw drought right now. So go, go to uh, the Amazon needlessthingspodcast.com and order yourself some long drinking straws for those tall cups you have that you don't want to pick up and and tip back. You just want to have a nice straw to drink out of. Wouldn't that be nice? And wouldn't it be nice to help out needless things? All right, that's all I got for you. Here's a little music from the Mystery Men. And then we're going to be talking to Sam Hale about Yamasong, March of the Hollows. <laughs> Check mark. Can we support puppetry films? Yes. Yes. Put there you my go. money towards <laughs> that. <laughs> you can write it in there. You know, budget money for puppet films. And we'll uh, wow. actually that's that's not a bad place to start right there. We'll we'll call that the uh, the opening line. So every all the listeners know that we want to support puppetry in every way that we can. Uh, so including uh, with our tax money. Including with our tax money. Absolutely. All right. Well. Uh, Sam, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you, David. And uh, what we're going to talk about today, it, we're, obviously there's going to be a lot of puppet talk, but I, I've i sat here and I've looked at this amazing press kit, and the first thing I want to say is I'm a big toy guy. Uh, uh-huh. I, I started uh-huh. the website writing toy reviews years ago. That was like one of the first things I put up, and I'm really, really enthusiastic about these you know small works of art and the first thing that got me looking at the information about Yamasong was the character designs and I immediately wanted toys so yeah absolutely I I immediately want toys too Uh, (laughs) it would be be great someday you know Um, yeah I mean I've got the originals in my office so I guess I have my 
my um, full-scale 20-inch toys. But uh, You've got the best Yamasong collection there will ever be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. You know, that's that's one of, you know, that's that's a big part of my background. You know, I started um, as a fine artist slash illustrator. And, um, you know, I grew up with, with comics and toys. So there's definitely that influence running through everything there. And, uh, you know, for me, making the, the puppets are like creating these, it's it's uh, creating creating these uh, moving sculptural objects that can be performed, and I know my my puppeteers on Yamasong said it multiple times they felt like they were they were just grown ups playing with toys again, and they loved it. Well, and that's what we've talked about on the show a lot of times when we discuss puppetry is that you know whether you know it or not, when you're a kid, if you play with toys, you're you're training to become a puppeteer. That's right. That's not right. not everybody follows that path, but we all have you know we, we all get our feet wet you know way back in the day. And yeah, we just... all have some level of training in in in, in puppetry. So uh, why why aren't there more of us out there doing it? You know? <laughs> right, absolutely. We all got that skill. Now, where did you grow up? I you know I grew up all over the place. Um, you know I was born in Portland, Oregon, and then we lived in Washington, Colorado, Montana, and Kansas. Oh, you grew um, up in beautiful places. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, most of the places were were suburban or, or suburban slash rural. Um, you know, I've lived in L.A. now most more of my life than anywhere else, so it's it's strange to wind up in such an urban place considering, you know, all the places I grew up in. But, uh, yeah, they were pretty beautiful, a lot of countryside and uh, mountains and, and uh, you know, open plains. And, yeah, you know, I've kind of run the gamut. So you you said growing up with toys and comics and whatever else, what what kind of stuff were you into then? Like what was sparking your imagination? At oh God! Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, me and and my brother and um, my best friend Nathan, um, we I think we alternated a lot, especially between Star Wars and GI Joe. You mm-hmm. know, I had a I had we had a I had a big GI Joe collection. He had a big Star Wars collection. So. He'd come over to my place and we'd play with GI Joes, and then we'd go to his place and play Star Wars. So, those were t- probably the two biggest influences as far as. To- well, you've you have uh, you've struck a chord with me because GI Joe is <laughs> is my will always be, and there are plenty of toy lines I love, but GI Joe is my line. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I loved about it was that you could. With a screwdriver, you could take them apart and reassemble them and make different characters. And so I got into that after, you know, after I kind of ran ran the gamut with the characters I had. Then I started kind of like kit bashing them and turning yep. them into brand new characters. And and I loved that and and uh, had a great run with that until I guess you know till I got to like say mid teens or something. And then one one Fourth of July, we decided that there was going to be a, a big battle and that they would <laughs> and that they would all they would all perish in the the final fire you know <laughs> so that's that's how that all ended but it that's, was glorious that's the tragic story that that most gi joe fans have because on because unfortunately when you love warfare toys it means you're probably going to want to blow things up too yeah yep <laughs> yep and that that fourth we had a big giant box of fireworks and we had to put it the box to use so we made that into a uh, basically a battleship and then we placed our characters strategically in different parts of the battleship and then set about <laughs> blowing them up so yeah 
That's what happens. Uh, I will not do that with the Yamasong puppets, though. I promise you that. <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm going to hold you to that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. I love that. G.I. Joe, the, it, not only in my, my favorite toy line, but really my introduction to to caring about storytelling as a kid because I got into the G.I. Joe comics uh, mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. time because Larry Hama, you know, he kept that yeah. story going, well, and still is to this day, but kept that going for so long. And I, it really engaged me the way he wrote those characters. And that, what uh, what kind of storytelling stuff do you think was was catching your attention early on oh gosh you mean in in reading the comics or playing with well anything really because i mean now you're you're telling stories now yeah uh and that that you know not everybody has a talent for that and it had to it had to come from somewhere there had to be something like a world or a creation or something that kind of caught you in the beginning well yeah well definitely you know comics were were a big inspiration um and you know speaking of like gi joe and you mentioned larry hama i just have to uh, and I know, you know, G.I. Joe fans probably all connect to this particular story, but Silent Storm. Oh, the, yes. The, the the one that had no words. It was all just visual. And it, I think, wasn't that the one that introduced Storm Shadow? It was um, the one that gave that backstory. Yeah. That connected yeah. them. I remember that one pretty well. And also going way back, I mean, going back to almost the beginning of, of the G.I. Joe comics with the, the the relationship between Storm Shadow, or no, Night, or, sorry, between... Um, between Snake Eyes and the bounty hunter, Quinn. Yes. Who I don't think they ever made a toy from, as far as I know. They finally did. With the, oh, they uh, did. With the 25th okay. anniversary toy line. Oh, my um, gosh. They finally made a Quinn. He's, he's like the updated sort of version of it. But, yeah, they finally made one. Well, I, I, I loved that whole storyline, too, where he was this kind of gray character but had a relationship with Snake Eyes. They definitely had a respect there, and then... You know, his sacrifice to, to save the Joes was, uh, that one, I remember that one stuck with me. And almost, I don't know if, um, you know, Yamasong doesn't have this particular storyline, but um, I do kind of gravitate to some of those stories sometimes. Like, that reminds me then of, in Thor comics, you know, which they, they riffed on in, in the Thor movie with the Executioner, you know, standing standing there with the, the two machine guns and holding back the, the, the zombie forces or the yes. dead undead forces. Yes. You know, those those kinds of stories stick with me. and I mean, lots of stories, but I'd say, for me, a lot of it started with comic books and um, and then branched out into, say, broader mythology and, um, and, and you know, non-Western stories. You know, I, I really started getting into more like, you know, like Japanese um, folk tales and and um, and I was studying Japanese at college, so that that kind of led me down that path as far as stories. But always kind of these big grand tales of you know of uh, you know fighting in some kind of fantasy world or or exploring a fantasy world and discovering the things there. I, I also played I played D and D for a few years there too, so that that also played into it as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. That any any kind of background in role playing like that is is gonna help sharpen your storytelling mind i think i think that's that's always you know anytime you hear D somewhere you're like okay this person is creative yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're, it's true you definitely sharpen your skills and and for me i think what came out of D was was just this love of of varieties of characters you know you've got you know none of your parties are straight 
fighters or straight wizards or straight, you know, one race or another, but, you know, you've got a diverse mix of characters. So I think I think some of it comes from that, and some of it's just a bigger, broader kind of American story about, you know, people from different backgrounds. You know, we're all immigrants or we're all from somewhere else, except for the natives, you know, who are here first. But uh, but in general, you know, it's kind of a, a big, broad story of of a lot of different people coming from different places with different goals and, and different cultures, and, and that definitely plays into Yamasong. Well, and I loved seeing, you know, you mentioned the getting into the, the various uh, Eastern mythologies, and I, when I was looking through the character designs, the Terrapin, I absolutely loved them. Yeah. Because I've, I've always, as far as the... Um, I, I haven't gotten as deep into it as I did with, like, Greek mythology and whatnot, but uh, I, I definitely am a fan of the concept of the yokai, and uh-huh. the the uh-huh. ca- the kappa has always been, and probably just because I love Ninja Turtles, but right, yeah. <laughs> the kappa I've all he's always it's always been one of those characters creatures whatever that anytime I see that that humanoid turtle form I just dig uh-huh. it and seeing the terrapin in this I was just like oh I, immediately I was like those are my guys <laughs> there you go there you go well this is funny because when when I used to work at Kyoto Brothers Productions and. Um, and they're the ones that you know made killer clowns from outer space. But they also have a they also made the Ninja Turtles TV series, and so they had some Ninja Turtles around the shop. And then one day Kevin Eastman came in, and um, they were setting up to do a big auction thing at Meltdown Comics here in LA. And so Kevin was there helping to kind of pick out like Ninja Turtle stuff that was going to move over to Meltdown Comics, and. Um, and I had I'd already made my short film by that point, so I kind of gave him the, the DVD, and I said, hey, check this out. It's got fighting turtles. And then I was like, oh, God, he probably just thinks it's a it's a Ninja Turtle knockoff. I don't know if he ever if he ever actually watched it, but I, he does have a copy of it anyway. Oh, that's fantastic. And you know what? I didn't know. I, I actually interviewed the Kyoto Brothers at Dragon Con last year, but it was for... Oh, sweet. Well, it was for an evil clowns panel, though. So Ninja Turtles, because I'm guessing it had to be Next Mutation that they did the live action. Uh huh. Anime mm-hmm. I, and that didn't yeah, even yeah. come up. I didn't even get to talk to him about that one. That's fantastic. Oh wow! Well, missed opportunity there. That yeah, was, uh... <laughs> uh, the life is full of them, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, especially after you've done the interview, then you're like, oh. Crap, I should have asked him about that. It happens every time. I guarantee, yeah. as a matter of fact, an hour after we hang up, I'll be like, oh, wait, the thing. Yeah, but, uh, yep, yep. We'll, we'll do our best to cover it all. So at what point did puppetry come into your sort of awareness? Uh, well, you know, growing up as a kid, I was, I was definitely aware of the Muppets. I remember tuning in on Saturdays and, and watching the Muppet show. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. At the time, I didn't think, hey, I'm going to... I want to work in puppetry. I want to make puppets. I, I didn't get into puppets till, uh, grad school. So uh, for for a lot of my puppet contemporaries, it's, I, I came to the game kind of late, late along the way, um, and I did that because I was I was at grad school working on a, a book illustration degree, and it was a book project, and I had done fourteen illustrations, and then I was like, you know these this just doesn't capture the full world I'm trying to build with this book. So then um, a mentor said, hey, why don't you do a puppet show too? So I I was in San Francisco at the time, and I found the San Francisco Bay Area Guild and um, joined that guild. And my first meeting, Dave Goals was there with Gonzo. 
So I got to meet oh Dave Goles. I got to see Gonzo the Great up close, and uh, it was it was one of these things. I, at the time, I was so new new to it. I was like, oh, I guess every guild meeting there's always going to be a Muppet or something. There's always going to be all this stuff at these guild meetings. <laughs> I didn't realize it was a really really special thing that was my first guild meeting. That was a you know a very special event that Dave Goles brought Gonzo. But uh, that's what really launched me, and then. For a few years, I was doing Muppet style, and then I started branching out, and then I got into tabletop, which is the, you know, inspired by Japanese traditional bunnaku puppetry, and that's where you've got, you know, three puppeteers performing, you know, one puppet, and and that's really, you know, where where Yamasong kind of grew out from that. So, you know, it took a few steps, a few changes in direction, but um, that's how I got into puppetry. Well, and that's what's so fascinating about puppetry, and we end up talking about it every time we discuss it here on the show, is that... You know, it's it's not just the, you know, putting your hand in the puppet and making it talk. There's so many different varieties from, you know, shadow puppetry to standard puppetry to what you're working with now. And it it really is almost the ultimate form of expression. I Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think it's, it's it, you know, people who haven't worked in puppetry or puppets on film, which is adding a, a whole other layer to it, uh, to me, I feel like that, yeah, I agree with you in that it, I think it really launches you into tickling all of the creative, you know, muscles and joints that you've got, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is, I'd say, one of the most creative kinds of, of expression that you can, you can, you know, get into. Well, it's combining performance with this beautiful visual art form of, mm-hmm. you know, creating the puppet whatever that may be and that's the other thing is the puppet can be anything if you need an animated toaster you can make a puppet if you need a realistic human puppet if you need a a warrior turtle i mean literally you can come up with so many different things and so many different ways to express a creative vision uh that, that it's just so amazingly versatile and i'm still even years after sort of being introduced by Bo to all the different forms it takes, and I'm still fascinated with how yeah. many ways yeah. it can be used. Yeah, it's it's amazing the, the the diversity of and the variety of things out there, and and again, you know, um, since I maybe because I came to puppetry late later than a lot of people, you know, I I sometimes ask myself, it's like why why aren't there more people in puppetry? You know, you know, if, if more people were discovering the the magic of it you know for lack of a better term that um i think there'd be a lot more people involved but it's it's such a kind of small community of of true believers you know well i think it's uh, really really hard yeah i yeah. mean a you i think in general people only have so much of themselves to to devote 100% into a thing and mm. creative people uh, you know, maybe they can give a little more of themselves to one specific thing, but then even when you pare it down, even to among the creative people that have what it takes to invest into puppetry, because puppetry is so much more demanding than anything else, I think. Uh, yeah. Okay, I get that. Yeah. I think it takes a very specific type of person who has enough passion in their heart for puppetry like i think you're st- you just uh, a person who's really really good at acting 
is really good at acting, but they don't have what it takes to be a puppet a puppet performer. I think mm-hmm. it's 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 just a it's a whole different level of performance and devotion than I think any other. And that's not to take anything away from other creators or other performers, sure. but it's so many things put into one that you have to put so much of yourself into. I think. And I think, yeah, and then I think what you find is that in a lot of puppetry circles, the, the people involved in puppetry are kind of, you know, the one-man or one-woman show. They, they, they write it, they direct it, they, they perform it, and they, they build the puppets. They, you know, even, you know, score the music. They, you know, did all the lighting cues or whatever. It, the life, I found there's a lot of those kind of, you know, brilliant, super creative, um, you know, one-person one show people out there. Uh, what I found with doing the film is it's it's kind of hard. You kind of kind of have to step back and start kind of parsing out what you're used to doing all by yourself to a bunch of other people. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. So making the film, you know, I was still writing, but um, and I designed the puppets and I sculpted most of our, all the main characters' heads and hands, but then turned the puppet fabrication over to a team of puppet builders. You know, and and then when you get into the, the 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 post side of it you know or well even the shooting side you know when you're shooting you're working with the team we ended up with eight puppeteers working on on the show so you know eight puppeteers bringing those characters to life and then and then you get into post and we had i don't even remember how many visual effects artists you know cleaning up all the shots and adding effects and embellishing and animation and all of that and you know you you really, I really stepped away, you know, appreciating the, the collaborative and creative process, especially when things worked, you know. Um, on the hard days, you know, you step away kind of cursing the collaborative process. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> well, and I think that's an important quality to have because not everybody can step back and sort of let other people uh, have a hand in their creation. And, and I think that's an important thing to be able to do because... A lot of times, because I would imagine you've put many years into this project at this point, and a lot uh, of times, yeah, Yama song, yeah. Well, the feature alone was about two and a half, three years, and and then the original short was a year. So uh, there's a big gap in between, but yeah, it's still even a year of your life on something is is a is a big amount of you know good chunk of time to dedicate to something. Three years was definitely a marathon. It it felt like a marathon. That's that's what I tell people. If you're going to do a feature film, you know, be prepared for a marathon. And and that's uh, that's that's definitely a huge part of it is that that time to devote to it. Uh, but before I want to talk about the production of the feature, but first I want to talk about where it came from and sort of the origins of this this world because the vision that you have of this world is very very clear from from the first few frames of the trailer. Where did this come from? Um, so, you know, Yamasong, March to the Hollows, is it's really the feature follow-up to the short film Yamasong, which I made back in 2009. Um, it premiered in 2010, uh, almost exactly uh, same time of year, April of 2010, at Florida Film Festival. And this was for Heather Henson's company, Ibex Puppetry. We have a series called Handmade Puppet Dreams. And um, I'm still working with her as a producer making these films helping other filmmakers make films. But I started out as a director on my own short film, which I pitched to her in 2009, and, and she funded. So uh, it started with that, and it began with music. The the first, or the song, the, the soundtrack for Yamasong's short film comes from On Ensemble, 
which is an LA-based fusion uh, taiko uh, Eastern Western uh, musical sound kind of uh, performing group, and um, you know we we had met prior to that, and and they they love the puppets. I'd done a live show in Little Tokyo, and um, the founder of own ensemble Shoji Kometa was in the audience, and he came up and said, oh, "I want to work with you and do something with puppets and taiko drums." So that's how it started, you know, and um, and it took a few years of just kind of talking back and forth and. And then they started working on a new album, and, and they had a song in there that was that became Yama song. So uh, that's how it really started. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I love it when a piece of music can 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 create something in you. Yeah, and now now looking at the feature, we've now we've created this really deep, broad world that you know really goes all the way back to one single piece of music. You know. So when creating the original short. Uh, what what was the process for that? What was, you know, g- planning it out, gathering your materials, figuring out how much time you had to invest in it, that sort of thing? Yeah, well, um, it started with the idea, you know, when um, Shoji gave me a, a copy of their, their new album and it just had track numbers. It didn't even have titles. So I was just listening to the music and listening for a, a song that might be a good one to, to turn into to something visual. And... Um, there's this one song, it's actually the first song on the album, and it, it conjured up this, this idea of climbing up a mountain, you know, but on an otherworldly place. But it was definitely a journey up a mountain. And it ended up, he had written that song um, inspired by Mount Shasta, which is the mountain that he grew up at the base of in Northern California. And it's kind of like, you know, his Mount Fuji. I was thinking of Mount Fuji when I was, you know, visualizing it. But the fact that we were both, you know... In, thinking about this journey up a mountain, even though it was, you know, two different mountains and then mine was more fantastical, it still all came from this this source piece that was the, the music that was all about climbing a mountain. So um, so I started writing it just jotting down ideas that came to me as I listened to the music. And then after two or three passes of that, then I looked at all the different, you know, notes of, you know, whatever visuals popped in my head and then started crafting a narrative out of it. So... Uh, that's that's how it started, and then you know once what what really helped was getting the funding from Heather. So once I had that, then I could sit down and go, okay, it's going to be an eight minute film. Um, these are the types of characters that are going to be in it. These are the beats of the story. And then I started, you know, uh, working on a. I don't think it was really scripted. I think I just went right to storyboard and then made an animatic. So uh, create an animatic for the for the visual narrative that one you know that's kind of like silent storm you know there's there's no dialogue it was just telling a story with characters and their actions and reactions to what's around them and and leaving it to the audience to interpret it to to a certain degree you know yeah i'm a i'm a big fan of of storytelling through visuals uh and and you know show it don't say it yeah yeah and and puppets do that really well you know they're when you get into too much of like talking heads, I think with puppets, it's it you know it, I mean anything when there's too many talking heads and nothing too visual to look at on screen, it starts to get boring. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so and but puppets are you know if you think of like Punch and Judy things like that, it's very action kind of driven, and there's an action aesthetic that puppets can capture. You know that that uh, even you know I think goes beyond you know human performance in a way. You know because it can be very big and broad and uh your characters can you know they can get you know, jump off the ground and fly through the air and 
and do things above and beyond what we normally can in our physicality. But, um, but yeah, so, um, yeah, so where was I? Uh, we, we did, a, I did an animatic and then started planning out, you know, which characters, I guess, let me back up. I had to decide how many characters first, you know, and uh, environments and what we could do for the budget we had. And then, now, did then you immediately the, have ideas for the characters that would appear in this? Like, were these already in your head in a way? Uh, yeah, some versions of them. Um, it's funny, the, the, the Terrapin character, which is the character now that Nathan Fillion voices in the feature, that character I made specifically a turtle character because um, Kometa, Shoji Kometa, the family, his family name is Turtle Field. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to make a turtle character because it's for their, you know, for their music video, essentially. And so that character was always going to be a turtle. But then um, then the, the Automata, Nani, that character, I think she really came from an idea that I'm still, I still have a story idea about um, two, basically two androids or robots that are trying to escape into a, another world and... Um, I'll, I'll tell you about it here on the podcast. Nobody take this idea, though. Okay, I want to do it. This <laughs> is uh, going back to the, the, you know, the studying Japanese and Japanese culture and um, and Japanese art and uh, you know Japanese woodblock prints are referred to oftentimes as being in the floating world. Ukiyo-e means floating world. So I, I thought, wouldn't it be kind of a cool idea if it's in the future, but there's still a Japanese aesthetic, but these. Japanese androids are trying to escape into the floating world, which is basically a virtual sanctuary for them to get away from the humans that are trying to destroy them. So oh, that wow. was the that's the that's the story that I was working on at the time when Shoji brought the music to me. So I'm like, you know what? We're gonna put a we're gonna put an automaton in the story, and plus it's puppets. So I thought it'd be perfect, you know, that there's a a, a living turtle character or living creature, and then an unliving, you know, automated character, but she's discovering this living world and the whole, and that, that really is what brought the story together was that the, the, you know, unnatural automata character discovers a beautiful paradise and wants to go there and then is transported there and goes on an adventure, but then is returned back to her artificial world. Yeah. So that's, that's what's going on in the short film. And that, uh, 2010, yeah, you said and that's that's when we premiered it, and then and then it played at Dragon Con and and did great there. It like won best animated fantasy or best fantasy short film, and then it won best film of the festival. So that was a, you know, I, I like to say Atlanta's Atlanta's good to us. You know, Dragon Con 2010, and now we're we're back again in 2018. We, you know, we for, love our puppetry and we love our original fiction. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, it's it's very exciting to see new mythologies and new new worlds like that that aren't. And, and look, don't get me wrong, I I love the Marvel stuff. I love you know the comics and licensed and whatever. But when I see a new world that captures my imagination, that's that's something really special these days. Oh, that's great to hear because I you know I'm sure you've heard this you know like the the independent films you know can have a, a pretty difficult time breaking into yeah. say a bigger broader audience and. That's because, like now, especially, it's dominated by, by you know the the big studios, you know, by the um, the Marvel movies and the the DC movies. DC somewhat, they're still working on it, but um, <laughs> yeah, they're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> It'll get there. Uh, you know, Star Wars, all of those those big ones, you know, are they're kind of the big boys and girls on the block, and uh, 
Yeah, it's it's nice to hear you say that that you know there there is a there is a hunger for for new worlds and, and new mythologies, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do here. You know. Yeah, that, I mean, look, every, everybody likes what's comfortable and the familiar and and the brands that we know, but I I really am hoping within the next you know few years that there's sort of a renaissance of of new things, and and you know I, I'm not saying you know stop with all the comic books but i i would love to see you know stuff like the dark crystal for instance things that are just wow i've never seen anything like this what is this yeah yeah and um and that's you know hopefully that's what's going to happen you know dark crystal's just around the corner so yeah um, yeah that's right a lot of us in up a tree are hoping that that'll uh that'll kind of inspire a new new interest in puppetry you know across the boards you know especially with the the money people who are like, oh, you know, this Dark Crystal thing is pretty cool. Um, who's out there making puppets? Right. Let's see what we can pull in here. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's, I mean, and really in this day and age, that's all it takes is for one, one kind of thing or one example of a kind of thing to to get some interest or make some money, and all of a sudden you get a lot of people in Hollywood who are like, oh, time to jump on that. Right. Right, but until then, they're all going to say no. Yeah, I, right. I know that from personal experience. After Yamasan, <laughs> after the short came out in 2010, I I shopped it around for a year, and you know was told at every door basically, oh this is this is too too different looking. This is too strange. This is too whatever. It, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a sequel. It's not a prequel. It's not a reboot uh, yeah, of yeah. all the stuff that we're familiar with. So. Uh, that's that's what I ran into. Well, I I have been told by many people, including our our mutual friend Bo, that yeah. you basically have to have an ele- elevator pitch that goes, it's like this popular thing mixed with this popular thing, <laughs> and that's like literally all they want to hear. Yeah, yeah, it's it's different than if it was in the nineteen eighties. Going back to Kyoto Brothers, you know, they always tell the story about. Um, when they pitched Killer Clowns from Outer Space, there was, all it was, was literally, we got this great idea, it's called Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and the producer said, sold! (laughs) They didn't even even get to the pitch. But, (laughs) yeah, those days are... That's when apparently people were throwing money at everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, and that's what it was, is we will, and it was the same way with toys back then, too. It was just a matter of, like, let's try every crazy thing we can until something works, which which Mm -hmm. led to wonderful movies and wonderful toys. That's why, you know, people get... Masters of the Universe. Yes, yes, absolutely. How did that ever get made? I don't think Masters of the Universe toys or, or the animated shows would have ever been made in in the present time if somebody came up and said you know it's this is this is the thing and you're like what and and it's it's funny because when people our age start talking about how wonderful the 80s were um you know other generations get a little cynical about that but i i really do think it's true that they were a fantastic time for creativity and in media and and everything else yeah it's definitely there's some wild stuff out there and what's weird to me now is that it's all coming back around and and that's the stuff that the you know i mean it's not weird you know the money people the 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 creatives who are making the decisions probably came from the 80s and the 90s and they they want to make the thing that they grew up with yeah well and that's what's happening in a lot of instances is they're looking at these old franchises and saying okay so 
I loved this thing when I was a kid. Now I can make something with it, and I'm going to make it the way I thought it should be when I was a kid, which in some cases is great, in some cases is maybe not so great. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hey, I'd be guilty of it too. I mean, if, oh, if yeah. I were in that position, you know, there's, it's it's like um, like Fantastic Four. You know, I I understand the idea to try to to mess with the the fundamentals a little bit because, the, you know, the originals the originals are from the the fifties and sixties and and it's, it's dated material and you want to update it and you know bring it into more of a, a modern give it a modern feel and and. Um, but you know, doesn't always work that well either. Yeah, I think it takes a, a very special vision to be able to to find the heart of a concept, but yeah. make it appeal to modern audiences. Uh, and I think for the most part, Marvel's been doing a very good job with that, uh, with, with few exceptions. But uh, you know, Fantastic Four, it seems like it shouldn't be that hard. It's it's a family having science adventures. Yeah, just yeah. do that. You know how how modern does that have to get? But you know, maybe maybe one yeah. day we'll see the good one. <laughs> I have a feeling you. I, if it were me, I'd probably throw in, mix it in with a little bit of a Doctor Who kind of feel because there's the whole. You know, they could go to any dimension. They can travel through time. They can do whatever. Um, but you know, it's. Uh, it, I think it would. Well, Doctor Who, I guess, it would be more of his episodic or whatever, but. The idea that you can go to all these crazy radical places, you know, following the same group of adventurers. That's, I think Fantastic Four would fall right into that same kind of groove, you know? I agree. It would actually be a better TV show than it would a movie. Uh, just, just the effects would be the problem. Right, right. Um, all, well, as long as they have the budget, you know, look at all of the, the superhero shows that are on now. And, you know, they seem to, uh, you know, I'm looking at all the CW shows, they seem to have enough budget for the effects you know that they can have speedsters and time travel and magic and you know sci-fi weaponry and everything pretty much yeah you'd have to when when you've got i'm just visioning elongated man on flash and as much as i love the way they do the character on there the effects Uh you you can tell like all right we have this much money and this amount of time to shoot him stretching let's get it done (laughs) and so you have three shots in that episode where he does something where he stretches right right exactly and the rest of the time he's just sort of hanging around yeah you i'm hyper aware of that kind of stuff anymore especially after having done yama song and thinking about how much each shot costs oh gosh Um, you know when i watch a show now that's that goes through my head it's like you know they how you know sometimes i'm surprised i'm like how are they doing this how do they have the budget to do this i watched the the new star trek i just finished watching star trek discovery and i was like how do they have the budget to do this episode to episode you know where did they save their money because i'm seeing so much money on screen right now it's just you know blowing me away i only Uh, saw the pilot we haven't gone back uh, for the full season yet, but that pilot blew me away. I was like, this is a theatrical quality set yeah. and effects and everything. I, I was I was shocked at how good it looked. Yeah, yeah, and I was uh, that, I was stunned. So, uh, I mean, you know, if if a studio can dedicate the the money to make something look good like that, then um, I think that's. I mean, I'm biased, but that's where they should put their their money. You know, put it yeah. to making. You know, put it on, put it on screen. You know, put it in the, for our in our case, you know, put it in the the puppets, put it in the the post production. You know, try to make it the best movie you can. And um, you know, I have to say, Yamasong, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. 
and um, I'm you know thankful to our, our producers at Dark Dunes for for backing this and, and making it happen and and I hope you know that uh, that this does open the doors like like you know we're saying with Dark Crystal that people see it and they're like oh you know we want to fund a, a puppet film and yeah. you know get some of the, some of these other there's we, there's a great body of of puppet filmmakers out there right now who are just you know waiting for this opportunity so i hope it opens doors for everybody so with yama song the the feature length uh follow up there are so many layers cuz i was looking at a lot of the behind the scenes shots here and uh-huh. how how do you orchestrate a scene in something like this to be filmed um well uh, well start with the script and storyboards and uh storyboards are so helpful i mean they're invaluable um it's just being able to communicate to your crew what you're going to shoot and what your angles are and being able to decide you know with the with the ad in the beginning in the morning you know you're sitting with the assistant director and you're going through shots and deciding what your shot list is and and you're cutting it up and, you know, ganging all of your same angles together, all your close-ups, we're going to shoot together, you know, this angle we're going to shoot all together, this angle we're going to shoot all together. So having the boards definitely helps. Um, you know, one thing I noticed for for Atlanta Film Festival, actually, I was putting together stills for it, and I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, maybe this is how it is with film in general, but especially with puppets. You know, we could only shoot two puppets on camera at one time because it's three puppeteers per puppet. So we had, generally we had six puppeteers, sometimes up to eight, but we can never get a third puppet on screen unless that puppet wasn't moving very much. Mm -hmm. It was like kind of standing in the background watching or whatever. So you only had to put one puppeteer on that puppet. So we had to really plan how to shoot these things so that, you know, that it would be composited in a certain way and um, that it would be, you know, everything would be, framed in a certain way so it could be, be composited in post and so every shot you know to planning you know and some were easy and some were hard um fights are the hardest you know battle choreography that that takes the most time but it does in live action too so um you know our average day we lose we, we only shoot half of our half of what we shot on a on a dialogue day you know when we're doing action so um yeah, how do you do it? It's it's planning. It's it's a lot of planning. And then once you're in there in rehearsing with the puppeteers, then there's that's the place where there's room for spontane- spontaneity and and um, something you know improvised. You know, especially in the fights. You know, like we kind of walk through the fights, and I'd say I kind of want to get from this point to this point, and then the puppeteers would be like, "How about this?" You know, and they try this or that. You know, and we get into some really you know fun, cool moments where that came out of just the the back and forth the conversation with the puppeteers um does that answer your question I, there's, there's it's a, it's a hard question to answer there's a lot of things that go into it but. yeah and that's it, it was a little bit too broad but but yeah that actually nails down really well what what i was kind of wondering about as far as you know you've got you have this green screen that the puppeteers have to operate against and that was that was kind of what i was wondering is the amount of staging involved in like because i'm sure you storyboard out a fight but once you're doing it physically in a 3D environment, you have to come up against like, oh wait, this won't work from this angle. Now we have to move this over here. Like they, you had to sort of run into yeah. things like that. Yeah, 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 definitely. And and you know the 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 extra layer of complexity over say live action is that 
you know, we've got three puppeteers gathered around one puppet. And so you've got to shoot it, hopefully, where you don't have too much puppeteer behind the puppet. So then that means your puppeteers are off to the side as much as possible. But then sometimes the puppeteers or oftentimes the puppeteers, you know, are messing up the lighting because we pre-light the puppets, you know, in the set with the lights to get a certain, you know, the get the lights a certain way. Then we bring in the puppeteers and we find out, oh, all the puppeteers on the right-hand side are throwing a big shadow over uh, everything. Yeah, so yeah. puppeteers, now you all have to move to the left-hand side. So those those were definitely some of the creative challenges were figuring out the, the placement of puppeteers and, and lighting. Uh, but we got pretty good at it. Um, our lighting lighting guys, our lighting team got really good at anticipating that. and We all did. Once we got into it, once we got into the thick of it, we all got good at anticipating the problems that, you know, having physical bodies, you know, looming over the puppeteers could cause. Actually, one of the one of my favorite shots from from the collection that was sent over here is uh, one of the Ram characters kind of in mid kick and the mm-hmm. puppeteer, uh, the, the puppeteer operating the head is into it. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. it's yeah. not just, OK, I'm going to sit here and move this character around like it's it's a performance. You can tell. Yes. Yes, it's it's all you know, you know, and it's like ah, you know, there's yeah, yeah. screaming and like and, a little kid know. playing with a GI yep. Joe. Yep, exactly. It's the same, but but with it's, a lot more technical skill. Yes, with more technical <laughs> skills and more intense. I think you know, I've I've got two kids who play with their their action figures. It's a lot of a lot of Lego stuff right now, but you know, when they're playing with their toys, it's the same thing. You know, it's like yeah. ah, yeah. yeah, 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 boom, bam, that kind of stuff. Um, it's just, I guess, adults doing it now. So how did you go about recruiting the right puppeteers for this job? Yeah, this, you know, I've, I've been working with a lot of puppeteers over the years, you know, making short films and, and, and live stuff. And, um, you know, for tabletop, I've worked with a lot of tabletop puppeteers who, who do this kind of style. So it was, it was a mix of bringing in tabletop puppeteers who or rod puppeteers who I've worked with in live performance that can work with monitors because that's 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 one of the big things you gotta you know you gotta be comfortable working with the monitors where you know you're not looking at the puppet you're performing so much as you're looking at what the camera is capturing right so um and then there's a lot of film and tv puppeteers in LA so I'm, I'm lucky in that sense and so it was a combination of bringing in some of the tabletop people and some of the film and tv people and uh, we got a, a, a really good bunch. Um, I have I have been uh, some I've been. <laughs> it's funny some of the puppet people that I know who uh, in the community who didn't get to work on Yama Song said next time you should do auditions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's great though. So, <laughs> that's great. That means you've you know they want to work with you. They want you. They want to. That's wanna, right. Uh, there you go. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, and you know we'll probably do something like that because we. You know, we ended up bringing in some people from out of town, too. I mean, uh, you know, locally there in Atlanta, Raymond Carr, um, you know, he's he's a puppeteer in Atlanta. But uh, Raymond was, I think he was popping back and forth between Atlanta and L.A. because he was working over at Henson Company. Yeah. And Raymond was great. You know, I, I just wish that we used him more. He was he was only on the last couple shoots that we did. And, uh, you know, he's he's just, he's solid. He He's awesome. Awesome. He's a busy man, and I'll get him on the podcast one of these days. 
<laughs> his his brother John was actually uh, I do a game show at Dragon Con and other places, and his brother John was actually uh, Ariel the Little Mermaid for our game show last year at Dragon Con. <laughs> it was tremendous. Oh my gosh! Oh wow! Wow! Yeah, talented family. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But, uh, yeah. They're awesome. Uh, yeah. and, and now you have this fantastic voice cast. Uh, how? What what was the decision making as far as how to voice these characters and like what what you wanted to aim for voice wise? Yeah, you know, it was um, you know, I I had ideas of their voices in my head and and I had essentially a wish list, uh, but then I also was the producers asked me to write up a description of each of the characters. So uh, in addition to having a photo of the puppet. There was a character description that went with it, and then they sent it out to agents, you know, trying to find the right, you know, actor or actress to, that could match that character. And um, it, it was a, it was an interesting process. I think it was, it was a little unorthodox. It was, uh, but it worked out great. I mean, um, I think our our producer Sultan Said Al Damraki, he always loved breaking me the breaking the news to me who our our latest cast was. He'd be he'd call me from the United Arab Emirates and he'd say, "Sam, are you sitting down? I have some news for you." <laughs> and I'd sit down and they'd break it to me. They're like, "Oh my god!" Or you know, there are a few in there I didn't know because I'm I'm not a, a I don't know a lot of the actors out there. You know, my my area is definitely sci-fi fantasy. So sure. you know, if it was Ian McKellen, I'd be like, "Oh my god, Gandalf." Yeah, but, yeah, you know, if it's somebody, you know, someone from a more kind of uh, a straight mainstream dramatic film or whatever, I wouldn't necessarily know who that actor was. You know, I, I, I got, I got, I got comfortable though with getting on the computer when Sultan would call me. I get on the computer and have IMDb ready to go. So if he told me somebody I didn't know, I could look him up. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he loved, he loved breaking the news, and that was that was the, his team really. You know, the Dark Dunes uh, team. They're the ones that brought everyone to the table, and it was, it was a building process. You know, it's uh, it's kind of like what you hear about. You know, when when you build a, a coalition or a team for any kind of project, it started with a couple of key people. You know, they had just worked with Malcolm McDowell on Sultan's film, so they had Malcolm, and then Malcolm's agent brought in David uh, Bruce Davison, who was, uh, who he also rep. So we had Malcolm McDowell and Bruce Davison. And then they went out and they start talking to people and they say, well, we've got Malcolm and we've got Bruce. You know, do you want to be on this kind of thing? And so um, I feel like we got I feel like we got George Takei pretty early on. And then once we got George, I think we got Nathan Fillion. And, and Nathan Nathan's interesting because he actually had wanted to work on um, some puppet stuff, you know, and he, he was hoping to get to work on some hints and things. And so he he was excited to you know since Heather Henson was attached as a executive producer, he wanted to work on it because Heather was involved. Sure, sure. So uh, yeah, and so we just kept building names and building names, and then you know in the end, I think Whoopi was our last one, and um, and Sultan called me and he goes, Sam, are you sitting down? He's like, okay, who's our who's our villain? And he goes, you'll never believe it. He goes, it's Marilyn Manson. That <laughs> one is actually Whoopi Goldberg, but I didn't, I didn't know how to respond to that one. He's like, "Are you there, Sam? Sam, I'm just joking. It's Whoopi Goldberg." I think you, I think you definitely got the better part of uh, of that deal. I, yeah. I love Marilyn Manson, but but uh, 
reliability and uh, predictability do not seem to be in his wheelhouse right now. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, I, well, if you ever get to meet Sultan, he loves to joke around. So uh, that's, awesome. that's his, his thing. So, uh, so yeah, so it's, it's really thanks to them. But yeah, the great part was is that, you know, George Takei was, was on my list and Nathan Fillion was on my list. And, you know, I'd say, you know, a good number of, you know, it was kind of half and half and, the ones we got that I hadn't imagined were were great too, so it all worked out pretty nicely. Well, that's I, I there. Uh, it reads like a who's who of a great sci-fi convention, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, Bruce, I hope we can do that someday. I hope I, we can get them all there. You know. Oh, that'd be fantastic. But I mean, Bruce Bruce Davison alone, I could sit and watch him just read lines. Yeah. Oh, he's fantastic, and you know, him, and he's very he's he's very technical. You know, he's like trying to determine the accent of the of the explorer, uh, kind of the the character who came to the world in the first place from a you know kind of the humanoid character, and um, that character is kind of a Reed Richards kind of character actually, and um, he's like, is he is he English? Is he New England? You know, uh, where do you want the accent? And you know, he's like playing with it and fine tuning it and getting it just right. You know. It was, oh, it was wonderful to, to hear those vocal qualities. And then, you know, Malcolm McDowell came in, and he just was this presence, you know, like a storm, you know. He's just powerful. And Ed Asner, I mean, he could just breathe, and his voice would be great. That guy his, has so much gravitas voice. just yes. being there. Yeah. yeah. And I feel bad because his character is a minor character, and when we were done, it was our sh- shortest recording session. And he's like, "Don't you have more for me?" And I was like, "I'll write you more." And we wrote, you know, we wrote more lines and recorded more just to get more of Ed Asner, you know. Oh, that's great! That's awesome. What, yeah. as far as directing uh, the the voice actors, what uh, you know in your head what you want to hear, but I'm sure they each, you know, as they get to know the character, kind of bring a little something to the process as well. How how collaborative? did that end up being you know it it depended on each actor you know each each actor comes in with a different set of skills and and different way of doing things um what i found was uh, the ones that had a lot of voice acting experience generally gave me three reads like a you know a small a small read and a medium read and and a big read so then you know when we're in editorial making choices we can go you know this this performance is a little too little too weak let's let's go to the next level up kind of thing so oh, wow that was that was a nice thing to get you know from from the the ones who knew how to do it and then um and then others you know if if it didn't sound right then i would i would ask to get a you know sometimes i'd perform the line myself or i just ask to get a more powerful read um it really just depended on each performer and um uh probably the most fun was when i actually performed opposite that that person with Whoopi Goldberg it was me and Whoopi I read I performed the lines to her and she responded to my lines so it was I was actually performing with Whoopi Goldberg which was great that is awesome her her voice is just fantastic I I love listening to her and she yeah. has so much range you know you don't you don't mm-hmm. typically think you know when you think or with me anyway when I think Whoopi Goldberg more than anything else I think of of her stand up and of like yeah. the comic relief specials on HBO and stuff like that, but she she has the ability to get so deep and so serious and so emotive. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she was, you know, because she's a, a big sci-fi fan, especially a, a Trekkie, yes, that, yes. Um, you know, we talked, that's how we kind of, we framed the conversation was, you know, she'd ask, what's my character's motivation? And we talked about, you know, it's the queen who, who's come to this planet and she has this gift, which is the, the mechanization. So she's going to turn all of the living creatures into mechanical creatures because she believes that's the gift that she's brought and it's going to elevate everybody and make them better. And, um, and she's like, so is she, is she like the Borg queen then? And oh, like, how awesome. Yeah, yeah, you know, we, <laughs> yeah, let's look at it that way. She's like the Borg queen, you know, and she's like, or she's a Borg queen and my mom, because my mom always tried to make me eat broccoli as a kid because she thought it was better for her for me. So I'll take a little bit of my mom and a little bit of the Borg queen and, and that's my character. Oh, man, and that's awesome. It's great. <laughs> it was great to find that with her, you know, and, um, yeah, and, and of course, you know, she's, she's Guinan in Star Trek, so there's that that quality she brings she already has lived in a like a sci-fi world and and become a character in, in another you know fantasy world so well and per, think, portrayed that portrayed that inherent like wisdom and mystique that Guinan had mm-hmm. like as soon as you see her or hear her you feel like this is a person that knows what they're talking about right and right. i love that that is my favorite kind of villain the villain with good intentions yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting. You know, when you see the movie, you'll see um, the the kind of the the changes that happen with that character too. It's I mean, for me, all the characters going back to kind of that the D and D thing where you know I have a love of characters from that probably and comics too in general is that um, you know each character has their story and their arc, and uh, I try to give you know each character a journey so that by the end of the story they've all gone through some some kind of change or or growth or or something happens to them you know so it's none of the char- none of our our characters are are unimportant let's put it that way yeah yeah absolutely well before we bring this thing home i want to talk about where people can find you online uh i think you're going to be in atlanta this weekend is that right that's right we're going to be premiering yamasong our world premiere it's going to be at Highland Theater on Sunday, April 15th at 2.15. And then, um, yeah, come and see it. You know, well, let's pack the house because uh, this will be the first time for a, for a uh, audience in, in the U.S. especially um, to see this film and, and uh, you know, respond to something that's very, you know, that's different from what you're used to anyway. Um, you know, all-puppet feature film. There hasn't been an all-puppet feature film since... Team America and Strings, which both came out in 2004, so that's uh, so it's 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 a pretty rare thing to see a puppet film, I think. Um, but yeah, so that's at Highland Theater on the 15th, and then um, you can you can like our Facebook page, uh, Yamasong, I believe it's Yamasong Feature, and then um, you can also um, follow us on Twitter at Dark Dunes. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to find. I should have this stuff all ready to go, huh? Oh, that's that's fine. We're uh, I, I I sprang the link thing on you. It's no problem at all. Believe me. And also, I'll I'll have a link in the show notes too, so people will be able to look it up and get all the links off of the uh, off the yeah. needless things page. Well, and, so and honestly, you, in this you, day and age, yeah. everybody knows mm-hmm. to Google. Yeah, I mean, you Google it, but uh, but yeah, it's it's um, Yamasong. Just do a Facebook search for Yamasong on Facebook. And um, the official page will come up there. If you go to Dark Dunes Twitter page, you'll be able to follow 
um, not just Yamasong, but their other projects as well. So those would be the two best places to, to find out what's going on. And uh, you can you can follow me on Instagram, um, at Sam Koji Hale, if you want to see. I, I put stuff up there, you know, puppet stuff. So there's a lot of, a lot of things I'll throw up there for people to see as well on Instagram. Excellent. Well, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the Needless Things podcast. And uh, best yeah, of luck you. in Atlanta, man. Uh, you should have a great time this weekend. I can't wait. Atlanta, like I said, Atlanta's been good to us. So uh, Atlanta loves its puppets, and uh, we're bringing you a puppet film. So hope to see everybody at the screening. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, Dave. Take care. Okay, so remember, Yamasong March of the Hollows premieres. It's, it's big premiere is right here in Atlanta as part of the Atlanta Film Festival. That's Sunday, April 15th at 2.15 p.m. at the H-I-L-A-N Theater. Hilan Theater? Uh, big, big deal that it's, it's debuting here in Atlanta where, as I said, we love puppetry and we love original fiction, and that's what this is. Uh, you can buy your tickets from AtlantaFilmFestival.com. Go check it out. Get in on this. And it's general admission, early bird admission, 10 bucks right now. You guys, you got to go check this out. And, and Sam is going to be there. Uh, he's going to be, I, I would assume, there will be some kind of Q&A involved. It's, it's just going to be awesome and if i wasn't going to see weird al uh going to meet weird al i would absolutely be there so go check it out atlantafilmfestival.com you can this and many other incredible things will be going on in atlanta this weekend um go to needlessthingspodcast.com and buy some amazon stuff Uh, really right now that's the only way to support the show so do that and if you want to be on the show if you have a thing to talk about shoot me an email phantomtroublemaker at gmail.com i'm always looking to do interviews my scheduling is really weird because of my day job and also because of family time but i do my best to work things in as quickly as i can if it's something uh that's time sensitive i can usually try to work that out uh, and also join the Needless Things podcast Facebook group. There you go. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vicks employee. Love you. Mean it. Uh-huh.